This episode of the podcast is brought to you by my company, Horns Building. Now this week saw us release our brand new clothing range. It's our spring range. And what we've done with this collection is we've tried to put together a bunch of garments that you can wear no matter what the weather. We've got a bunch of new t-shirts. These ones I really like. We've got a Berserker Spirit t-shirt and an Ulfordin Spirit t-shirt. What these are is that they've got a warrior in the middle and then behind the warrior you've got the spirit of the animal that they're embodying. So behind the Berserker you've got a bear and behind the Ulfordin you've got a wolf. Um, alongside that for those of you who like something a little bit more simple we've got just a logo t-shirt so it's our logo on the left hand side and that comes in a heather navy and a woodland heather and these t-shirts are 100% organic recycled cotton then we've got a new jogging pants which come in the men's and the women's and we've also got a hoodie so these are all in black with our logo embroidered on them again with the hoodie we're trying to keep in that theme of keeping things sustainable so that's made from 85% organic cotton and 15% uh, recycled polyester and it's um, global organic treaty certified and also fair weather foundation certified and finally I think my favorite item from this launch is we've got a brand new 100% cotton jumper now this jumper is absolutely perfect for me you can wear it on its own or you can layer it up and have a t-shirt under it and throw that on top for that little bit of extra warmth it's really comfortable it's really soft like I said, it's 100% cotton. Uh, the men's one comes in black and a beautiful olive colour. And then we do a women's one, which comes in a lovely navy colour as well. So yeah, just pop over to the website and check them out. Don't forget, you get that extra 10% discount off anything store-wide for listening to the podcast and for supporting the podcast. Just use Horns10 at checkout and you can get 10% off anything. Thanks for listening. Let's jump into the show. Welcome to the Nordic Mythology Podcast. I'm Daniel Farron, co-owner of the company Horns Bowden, and I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Matthias Nordvig. Hello, everyone. This time we are joined by Leszek Gardela, um, who is currently doing a postdoc, as far as I understand, at the National uh, Museum of Denmark. Leszek is a, well, I would say, pretty famous at this point archaeologist who works with a lot of very interesting topics, and we're going to discuss some of them, and especially shield maidens, mm-hmm. um, in this episode. So, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, thank you for, for giving us some time. I know you're a busy man. I think we've had this one booked in for two or three months. I think. That's true. Yes. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, we we definitely appreciate your. You know, we have a multitude of different people listening to the show, but among sort of the scholarly type listeners your name is the one that came up repeatedly i think of of guests people would like to see us have on here so uh when Matthias managed to to book you and i was definitely looking forward to it so yeah i mean how are you how are things in in your area of the world i mean just before the show you were telling us about the books you've written and i've got to say you don't look old enough to have written or done that amount of that amount of studying yeah i i guess i have what uh my German colleagues call uh, Zitzfleisch. So I just, I just sit and write them, you know, and just, uh, yeah, type, type some letters on my laptop in the right order. And, uh, <laughs> and these books just come out. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you must be doing something right. 
yeah i hope so but i i mean i've never written a, a book like that but i assume there's more research than actual writing and i guess mm. that's what takes that's what takes the time yeah i think i mean in my case i uh i've had this passion for the viking age since i was a kid basically and and i kind of started collecting uh books and articles and all kinds of things kind of thinking ahead thinking mm -hmm. about the the books i kind of wanted to write in the future so so by this point i've i've gathered a pretty massive private <laughs> collection of books uh to the point that in many cases i just don't really have to go to libraries anymore because i i have what i need on my on my own shelf of course you know in the modern digital age, it's almost overwhelming how much uh, data is being produced uh, constantly. It's mm -hmm. even as as an academic, with with all these open access articles and now Academia Edu, it's all really useful, but it's also overwhelming. It's really hard to get a grasp of the whole field of what's really going on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm trying, but. Uh, yeah, no, I think I mean, it's no longer possible. I think I think you might be right. Like the 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 old days of like writing a a basic history of the research of a certain topic, yeah. you're always going to 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 miss something because there's so much being produced. Exactly, and and I think our field, sort of the field of Viking studies or Old Norse and Viking studies. So I'm I'm thinking about archaeology and textual scholarship and uh, history of religion and so on these disciplines are being sort of performed in different countries around the world, uh, the Americas, Europe, and a variety of languages. And when, when it's all now digitalized, it's really hard to, mm -hmm. uh, to get a, a, a really good overview of what's, what's going on out there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's, there's a lot of excellent scholarship that is not published in sort of Congress languages like English and German and, yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean, obviously I come from a very much a, a lay person angle and I see tons of kind of misinformation out there on, on the very basic level. Mm. Does that happen the same at kind of like the scholarly level or does it kind of all get mm. weeded out a little bit by the time it gets to there? Yeah, in, in some cases, yes. And um, I think it's also because well, I'm an archaeologist by uh, by profession, and I think it's this misinformation, or or perhaps you know this kind of cutting corners here and there. It just it, it's it results from the fact that we cannot no longer be experts even in our own field, really. Mm. Uh, for instance, archaeology has become such an interdisciplinary field. It's not just you know digging up stuff from the ground and sort of typologizing it or or making chronologies and so on. It's so much more complicated. And uh, we're not only in, in talking about Viking stuff, we're not only using textual sources and, and anthropology and sociology, but but this whole new field of uh, sort of hard sciences have op has opened up. Uh, we have DNA analyses, isotopes, all kinds of metallographic studies, which are very, very specific. And, and for someone who is not an expert, sometimes really difficult to understand. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so it's when we're referring to the work of our colleagues and using it for our own interpretations, we can misinterpret it simply and 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 simplify things. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But no, yeah, I, but I, of course, outside of academia, there yeah. there is a lot of misinformation because now, well, anyone can can write an article and anyone can uh, can run a a page about Vikings or Norse mythology, um, and it's it, it's very easy for someone kind of new to the topic. It's it's very easy to get lost in this and mm-hmm. to kind of mis misunderstand who who's making things up and who is actually yeah. uh, using uh, verifiable and and sort of credible um, sources. Mm-hmm. Very, very much so. Yeah. I would say in terms of like scholarship, there there might be like three three main ways in which you can get misconceptions or or something like that. One is basically the reproduction, and this is usually in textual scholarship, like reproduction of, of an old mistake. So mm. basically you you keep referring back to the same uh, sort of like authority on something and, and they actually screwed it up sometime back in the 19th century or something like that. Um, another one is is um, is misreading or misunderstanding a text, right? That That is something that that happens a lot. And, and then uh, on the side of like uh, textual scholarship is um, misinterpreting archaeological material or you know for for me one of the big hurdles that I've been working with is of course like geology and volcanology and uh. and like sometimes I'm I'm like is this really is this really true <laughs> like <laughs> when I'm working with that stuff because it's just you know <laughs> yeah. like volcanic events are just so you know they can be so massive on scale that sometimes you're like wow that um like you know, the data for all of this are just crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I I couldn't agree more. I mean, this source critical scrutiny, I think it's it's really important in in the things that we do. And and you talked about textual sources. I can say the same about archaeology. Uh, mm. That that a lot of scholars or sort of enthusiasts of archaeology, um, well sometimes get lazy simply uh, simply put it and they they uh, they use secondhand references they don't really bother to actually check the original source the original publication many of which in fact when talking about viking archaeology are publications from the 19th century or the early uh, 20th century some of which are easy to find others not so much and and not many people actually make this effort to uh, to check the material, the actual finds in museum collections. Yeah. And when when they do, it turns out that they don't necessarily look like they thought they did, or or or, or uh, that things are smaller or bigger, or there's something on the reverse that no one was aware of. Um, mm-hmm. I I kind of I belong to those maybe. I don't know, old school archaeologists. And I, I like to check things for myself. And and whenever I can, I kind of take this opportunity to actually go and see the objects, see the, the sites, uh, to touch them if 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 it's at all possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's uh, it's a fantastic experience and it changes everything if you have this kind of 
uh, your own kind of personal experience of, of a place, of an object, uh, mm -hmm. when you can look at it from different angles, from different perspectives, you know its weight, the, the kind of the feeling of, 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 the, of the material. Uh, yeah. No, absolutely. It brings you closer. It brings you closer, I think, to the. It definitely does. I mean, that I, as a textual scholar myself, like one of the things that has always helped me is is my uh, sort of knowledge of certain places mm. um, and and like different experiences of like sail sailing on a Viking ship or, you know, messing around by surf settler in in Iceland and and those That's kinds of things, place. right? Yeah, so no, I I, I totally agree that. Um, <laughs> See, like, this is this is where my uh, completely non-scholarly mind comes into, and I'm like, yeah, I'm a diet at the minute, uh, so Mateus could tell me how good a chocolate cake is, but until I eat the fucking chocolate cake, I'm not exactly. gonna know how good that chocolate cake really is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's where exactly. my mind goes. Exactly. Like one thing that we generally don't really talk about too much, and something I. I've been thinking for years, and this this was one of my my kind of very early concerns when I when I got into the whole archaeology thing. Is yeah, on the one hand, it's really important to go and see those places, experience them, uh, to 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 experience the objects, to touch them. But on the other hand, uh, especially when we're dealing with things of religious character. And I think we all kind of share this interest in Old Norse mythology and religious practice and ritual objects and so on. I often think, well, should I actually see, see them or should I touch them? Am I allowed to touch them? What would the people, the original owners of those objects think about this? Mm -hmm. now, I have all, all kinds of ethical concerns and uh, and and my career, you know, I've I've examined magic staffs, amulets. I've looked at burials and touched bones and so on. And uh, and whenever I do that, of course, you know, you're excited. You're you're trying to do it professionally, and you're trying to do it in in the most kind of careful way possible. But there's always this this thought: Am I doing it right? Am I the right person? Uh, should these things even see the light of day? You know, should, mm -hmm. should they have actually remained in the ground? Mm. Um, yeah, I, I have those concerns. I, I never even, like I said, I never even thought of that aspect of it. Yeah, um, it's you know, there's there's some 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 objects in archaeology that uh, that that we find, and and uh, especially from graves that are, for instance, bent or so ritually broken or or pressed by stones as if you know implying that someone really wanted this stuff to stay underground mm -hmm. and it's no longer there it's in the yes. museum box or in a glass case on display and uh right. yeah no i mean this is a of course a, a conversation that is very alive here in north america oh yes um, and, and that has something to do with the, you know, the Native American history yeah. and, 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 and all the, the, the genocidal things that have been happening here. Um, uh, but I mean, I, I think it's, it's a valid concern to also have in context of Europe mm -hmm. and in context of, um, of, of what you see there, because yes, there, people certainly had an intention that this needs to stay underground. And I think, you know, you can even go to the folklore 
and you know you find folk tales that uh, that talk about how um, you know how to avoid uh, burial grounds, um, uh, the mounds especially, and sometimes also mention artifacts from the mounds um, as a, like drinking horn as one thing yeah. that, as poisonous or or something that can kill you um, just by touching it. Yeah. So. I mean that's that's quite interesting. There's there are plenty of stories in the, the old Norse material and and also later Scandinavian folklore oh. um, that that relate to that phenomenon. So that's that's actually quite interesting to to, to consider. Imagine this stuff was was buried with the intent of nobody immediately getting to it. Though I, I don't think that they would have had the foresight of maybe in a thousand years. There's going to be three guys sat on a podcast talking yeah. about it, or, or somebody wanting to put it in a museum. I don't. I think that would just never have even mm. come into it. Come into the mind. It was. I imagine it was more about that immediate kind of grave robbing and disrespect of the items. Um, so I guess you, you. I mean, you'll never know whether they would mind them this yeah, far well, gone. Yeah. On on the other hand, this idea of um, as you call it, grave robbery, or we, we call it grave robbery, but we also call it in a sort of more neutral way, we call it reopening or grave reopening, because the idea of accessing old graves was not always uh, kind of motivated by, by robbery, by the intention to, to take things and steal them, but sometimes it was about interacting with the dead, feasting with them, uh, sure. washing them, talking to them. Uh, gaining some sort of supernatural knowledge from them, so it sometimes it was, it was yeah, yeah. Sometimes it was it was sanctioned. So mm -hmm. some some people probably wouldn't mind, but today, as as archaeologists, well, we cannot know this. We we don't know this. Mm -hmm. So uh, well, I I don't perform any kind of sorcery over over the objects that I study, but the least I can do is is just to kind of spare a thought, you know, just mm -hmm. pick something up and just think, okay, you know, I'm, I'm holding this object. It belonged to a real human, you know, mm -hmm. it does or not it belong to, a real human. to skeleton B41 from this site somewhere in the north. No, it belonged to an actual person. Mm -hmm. uh, and they, they had feelings, they had some emotions, and I have to, I have to respect that. No, that's such a, a, a beautiful way to to go about it, I think, because it's so easy just to forget that attachment and just look at these objects as objects. And even when it comes down to a bone, when it's in a or a skull, it's you know, it's behind a glass case and it's got a fancy yeah. light on it and it looks cool and there's a little placard that tells you about it, but you still forget that. Yeah, and I, I think I think we we do forget about this. And was sometimes we kind of marvel at the at the material quality of objects and we like to put them in, in in shiny glass cases and we kind of disconnect them from people mm -hmm. disconnect them from their owners and i think we shouldn't it's mm -hmm. uh one thing that that always strikes me uh or would strike me whenever i visited the uh the viking ship museum in oslo mm -hmm. uh, and i studied uh some some 10 years ago i studied in in oslo um and I had free access to the museum, so I would just go there very regularly um, to to look at uh, look at the finds. And what surprises me is that this museum is kind of comprises of 
grave ships, basically. And it's all about the Viking ships, which would have never kind of come to life if not for the humans, the people mm -hmm. of the Viking Age. And yet the, the Usabak uh, ship, uh, one of the sort of main highlights of the museum, is the most important object in the museum, whereas the, the bones of the women who were buried on board, they're just tucked away somewhere in the corner as if they were just like an addition to the ship. Mm -hmm. And that's no, not, not important at all. There's much more information about the ship than about the, yeah. the women buried there. And that's somehow, I, I don't know, but it somehow breaks my heart. I think it's... You know, this uh, this is really yeah. No, you, now you're getting me fired up. I love I love this conversation. <laughs> like this, so 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 what we're dealing with here is sort of the uh, two things, like the modern focus on on technology, and also of course the desire to display something that looks incredibly awesome, right? Mm. Um, as part of like the the museum as a institution, it's it's early. Uh, sort of like uh, conception, right? That that it's basically there uh, to 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 demonstrate your power in different um, ways. And of course, like the Viking Age is like the main thing for Scandinavians when it comes to like demonstrating power or awesomeness. Yeah. Um, but but you're totally right. There's there's this complete um, um, uh, disinterest in the entire imaginary universe that comes with the fact mm -hmm. that that ship was buried in the first place and yeah. these women who were on it are of course the center of exactly. that right exactly. <laughs> i mean to, to play kind of devil's advocate to that how much do you think the setup might be sort of commercial in an instance of getting people yeah. through the door because there is some i mean when you see the ship especially like when i saw it for the first time it's it's breathtaking it's it unlike anything no matter again like the example before about you can see pictures of it I've, I've seen tons of pictures of it but until you see it in person and see the craftsmanship and the work and the size you don't really appreciate so i guess maybe they've set it up this way because they want to get people through the door which then yeah, keeps the the museum open and keeps research going i assume and mm -hmm. this kind of thing so it's almost a a scale you know a scale and balance of how you how you do it but i i certainly agree that i remember seeing the two skeletons i think as you go in like on the left hand side they're in the in the far corner and there's a little bit of writing about possibly who they were yeah but it's certainly not not enough bringing to a life about who you know yeah. who they were and and it's 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 changing. I think it's also changing in Viking studies, and uh, some recent developments in in the field have kind of given names or identities to certain individuals from the Viking Age. And of course, mm -hmm. we kind of started a little bit about talking a little bit about shield maidens, and uh, and the the Birka woman mm -hmm. has now acquired an identity. This person mm -hmm. is no longer just a number in a mm -hmm. catalog, just a skeleton uh, on a page. It's it's an individual again. Mm -hmm. um, so, do you think it's important to give give names, even though necessarily you might not know yeah, what uh, their name was well, in life? Never, yeah, that's that's of course that's very tricky. Uh, I think in the first place we have to see them as humans. That's mm -hmm. kind of where we start, I think, and then we will never know. 
I think, who, who these people really were, what they did, we can only guess. And uh, when dealing with, with funerary archaeology, graves, uh, I, I always kind of repeat this old motto, you know, the dead don't bury themselves. And, uh, and it's the mourners, the ritual specialists who kind of orchestrate the, the funeral. They decide what ends up in the grave and what doesn't. So they, they have power over identities and the creation of identities, the creation of memories. Um, and what, I mean, what, we, what we kind of discover is the result of their imagination and their manipulation uh, of those identities. But, but from all this, we can still try, we can try and see the person maybe as they saw themselves to probably to a larger extent how others perceived them but yeah mm -hmm. yeah i think i think the fact they're buried like you said means something it means people cared mm -hmm. cared yeah. enough to dig a to dig the hole because i mean digging's hard i don't it know is. if you've ever yeah, tried digging it especially, <laughs> yeah, I mean, especially in the north yeah <laughs> and especially if you want to put in a giant ship in there as well, well i mean yeah the ship, <laughs> even just even just for a person i'd be like do i like them that much <laughs> maybe i'm not sure but um no, I think there's there's definitely something about giving things names. It's very human. Mm. Um, you know, if you if you have a pet, as soon as you give it a name, it's an identity. It becomes part of the family. There is something mm. to that, and it, it's. And I, I've never really thought of that of giving names to these kind of finds and, and bones, but I imagine it does create. I mean, by by names, I don't mean you know calling them Sigrid or whatever. Uh... It's just giving giving them identities of, of some mm -hmm. sort based on on what we find professions or or sort of yeah, yeah I mean lifestyle. that comes with like spending enough time with mm -hmm. with them so to speak I mean yeah. uh, for for me personally um, Graupelman uh, that's out at Moscow Museum at Aarhus right. Um, he, I have sort of like a personal <laughs> relation to 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 this this uh, dead guy from the Iron Age, right? Mm -hmm. Basically only the skin has survived and then the, the hair and he, he lies there as, as sort of like a, 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 like a, a leathery sack of human. Um, <laughs> but it's like, I have a personal relationship to mm -hmm. him because I've been at that museum so many times uh, throughout my life. And, and it's like one of the first things I remember from the museum when, when I was taken there as a kid. Um, so no, I, I totally I, I totally understand what you mean by 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 giving them identity that that they they become um, they become humans in mm. that yeah no it makes perfect sense. Um, it, it, so one thing I would like to ask you about we we touched on it briefly uh, in the beginning here um, this uh, situation of becoming interested in Vikings uh, growing up in Poland. Um, mm. I would like to hear, uh, uh, first of all, what is the um, the research environment in Poland when it comes to the Viking Age? Uh, how has it developed over um, you know the last couple of decades, and and what did it like feel like to 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 be somebody interested in Vikings in, in Poland? That's a that's a long story. <laughs> um, We've got time. Okay. Well. For me, it started really early on when I was just a just a kid, really. Um, 
I came across a comic book series called Torgal, um, a comic book series which is very popular in Poland and France and Belgium. It's not that popular in the sort of Scandinavian and Anglophone area, even though mm. there are actually translations, uh, English translations of the comic book. If you haven't seen it, check it out. It's really mm. good. It's called Torgal. Um, and it's a series created by uh, by a Polish uh, artist, Grzegorz Rosiński, um, and, uh, and a, a Belgian uh, scriptwriter, Jean mm -hmm. Van Ham. Uh, I think he's Belgian. Um, and uh, it's it was just fantastic. It was just mind blowing. The first the first uh, several episodes I read just changed my life forever, really. Um, the story is, is set in the Viking Age. Um, there are some historical figures that appear in the series, but not too many. Uh, the sort of the, the sort of real uh, characters that that the main hero encounters are are mostly characters from Norse mythology, mm. actually. Um, and the comic book, in a very kind of smart way, combines the Viking Age with all the things that were kind of really popular in the 1980s and 1990s, including the crazy theories of Erich von Däniken and Atlantis and aliens. But and it, it, it kind of sounds, sounds, sounds funny when I, when I say it like that, but it's, it's really kind of woven together in a really interesting, uh, interesting way that makes, you, that makes sense. It just mm -hmm. makes sense in this comic book world. Yeah, but the the Viking Age and the Vikings kind of took central stage in the story, and I just I just loved it. Um, so that's how it started. And then uh, some years later, in my hometown, I uh, I met some people who were at that time in the 1990s uh, members of um, of a reenactment group. Mm. Well, to call it a reenactment group is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> maybe too much, but uh, of a, of a group of guys who liked sword fighting, okay, mm -hmm. and, uh, and kind of dressed up as as uh, as knights, and uh, they were the film best. the film Braveheart was really popular at that point, so, <laughs> so they all right. wanted to be William Wallace. It was it was all very kind of innocent and and uh, unprofessional at that point, but but it had a a certain charm and uh, and a certain magic, and I. I, I got really interested in that, but uh, but because of my Torgal comic book background, I didn't really want to be a, a, a Christian knight, and I wanted to be a pagan Viking. Mm -hmm. And uh, and at some point, I met a another guy who was actually a, a member of a Viking reenactment group, and he um, he he was a uh, is a very intelligent guy, uh, also a, a, a heavy metal or, or black metal musician. And, uh, uh, and he said, well, if you want to learn more about the Vikings and about the Viking Age, you should read something more than just Torgal and comic books. You should read some academic literature and you should read the Poetic Edda. Uh, what? What? Uh, yeah, <laughs> the Poetic Edda. Uh, you, should, you should read um, the sagas. That will give you a better understanding of of this world, of of the mythology, um, of the worldview, and so on. So, okay, he he mentioned this poetic edda to me, 
and I thought, okay, I gotta, I gotta check it out. And remember, this is the pre-internet age, and no one had internet. And especially if you come from a small town, it's, it's not that easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Poland, of all places, a country that is just rising from uh, 50 years of communism. Mm-hmm. It was a dark gray place at that point. Mm-hmm. But uh, so I went to this local library uh, and I actually found a Polish translation of the Poetic Edda wow. that was published in 1986. Oh. And it's a it's a beautiful translation. It's a beautiful. Well, the, the poems of the Edda are beautiful in themselves, but the translation into Polish is actually a work of art. It's really, really well done. And I remember I, I, I read it immediately uh, and I could not understand most of it. <laughs> I I could only understand Halvamal because it's just such a universal poem that speaks to to everyone, I think. Mm-hmm. Some of the things are just so so basic and so true and so wise that it kind of it touched me on an emotional level. Mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't really understand much of the other poems and I needed some kind of guide some kind of yeah explanation of and it was really hard uh, because at that point there was there wasn't really any kind of Norse mythology overview publication in Polish uh, there was one book uh, written in a in a very kind of um, difficult style uh, difficult to understand by a teenager at least I tried and I, and I failed uh, but what I did is I I had this dictionary at home and it was like a dictionary of mythologies or m- dictionary of symbols and mythologies, something like that. So I would like, you know, browse through the dictionary and check, aha, Odin, Thor, Ymir, you know, Midgard's mm-hmm. and all these. And I kind of pieced it together. And it was in that dictionary, it was kind of explained in a, in a clearer way. So after weeks of, you know, reading this and that, I, I I had a, a a more or less structured picture of the of the Norse world and of the Norse mythology. Um, so that's kind of how it started. And then as I grew older, um, I decided uh, I'm gonna create my own reenactment group, my own Viking reenactment group. Uh, and I had some great great ambitions. Um, some people didn't like it. They thought I was too strict and kind of too uh, <laughs> too academic about things. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I had a, I had a goal definitely, and my goal at that point was to create a group that's good enough to go to this Viking festival in Volin. Mm-hmm. And uh, at that point, they had pretty high standards. Remember, it's still you know late nineties, early two thousands. Um, so, uh, so I, I, I had some, some goals that I set and, and in the end, uh, we made it actually, we, we got accepted, uh, and we, we made it to volume. And this was also a, a, a fantastic experience and, uh, and, and, and a life-changing experience to meet other crazy mm-hmm. people from all around the world. And then, yeah, at around this, this time, I... This was the time when I was kind of transitioning from my high school to my university studies. And that's also when I decided that I wanted to make the Viking Age my career 
or I wanted to kind of pursue this further in a, in a more academic way. So the only way to do this, being from Poland and living in Poland, uh, was to study archaeology, I thought. Mm. Um, I would really wanted to study in Krakow, which uh, is this kind of ancient university, one of the oldest universities in Europe. Uh, my mother studied there, and I thought that, yeah, Krakow is the place to go. Uh, to be admitted, you have to pass an exam. And I, I went to Krakow, and I didn't perform very well. And also the, the jury, they didn't really seem very interested in this guy who wanted to study archaeology to study Vikings. <laughs> so, so I failed. They did not accept my... Uh, did not accept me as a student, but two other universities in Poland uh, accepted me, and uh, and I chose Poznań University. Mm. I had never been to Poznań before, in fact. So I knew nothing about the, the the city. I knew nothing about the the area, other than the fact that this area, known as Greater Poland, um, is actually the heart of the Piast state. So the heart of Poland, basically, where the where the state was formed. Mm. So it's sort of like Yelling or Gamla Uppsala, you know, Birka, mm. that, that kind of, if you want a Scandinavian equivalent, that's that kind of area. Mm. Um, so I came to Poznań. Um, I, I started my studies in 2003. So I came to Poznań. Um, it, uh, it was, it, it's located around 300 kilometers away from, from where I was born. Um, and the university is also one of the older universities or, and one of the best universities in, in this country. I actually have uh, a, I have a good friend who teaches Danish there. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, but I, I knew nothing or very little about its sort of archaeological academic profile, but, uh, there, when I, when I began my studies, uh, I, I immediately went to the library because I wanted books and I wanted knowledge and you know I, I wanted to learn learn more about Vikings and find books about Vikings. I was just totally obsessed about that. And and they had this this very traditional system in the library where you couldn't actually go inside the library, sort of between the shelves. They had this kind of old school catalog with these little drawers and you, you, you like cards and you have to find you know your author and your book and then you'd go to this little window and give this little card to the lady and then she would bring the book for you so i would like go there every single day with like you know tons of those little uh little cards uh with asking for books about vikings until one day she said well you're you're such a pain in the ass, basically, that I'll let you in. I'll show you where things are, and you can just find what you want. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, and that was quite unique because only like professors and people who actually worked at this institute of prehistory, as it was called, that only they could actually enter the the library like this. So mm. I just spent days there, you know, reading, photocopying. I I browsed through every single journal. Uh, that, that they had looking for stuff about Vikings and I photocopied it and uh, or photographed it and that's kind of how I how I how I learned things because even though Poznań actually has 
strong traditions uh, of uh, uh, dealing with Viking stuff. Um, when I studied archaeology, all those professors were long dead. Mm. So uh, there were no Viking experts uh, that could teach me uh, Viking studies. So I had to kind of learn through the library and through experience. Mm -hmm. um, back in the 1960s, um, 1970s, until the 1990s, um, there was a guy called Diana Jacques, who was a professor of archaeology and one of the leading Central European experts of Slavic and Viking studies. And he published uh, a lot uh, during his career, including a massive three-volume publication uh, on Scandinavian imports, uh, as he called them, in the West Slavic area. Basically, a, a kind of a full analysis of all kinds of Scandi material from the Viking Age found in Poland and Germany. Mm. Uh, really mind-blowing work, which to this day is good. Mm -hmm. um, it's just amazing, full of you know footnotes and references and details. Uh, how he wrote this book in the 1960s without the internet, without access to to a lot of things, I don't know. It was just <laughs> no, that's really impressive. But also, you know, when you think about the the, the, the backstory to all of this, like yeah. in 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 uh, uh, communist Eastern Europe, uh, Vikings. And all the Germanic stuff weren't particularly, you know, high-ranking here. Like yeah, um, I think in in talking about this, you kind of uh, have to, yeah, set set things in a in in perspective. And maybe I'll stop my kind of biographical story here and and kind of talk about the the history of Viking studies because that's that's something that's really interesting. Uh, Viking studies in Poland, and, I mean, and in fact, the the history goes back all the way to the 19th century. That's mm -hmm. kind of when the interest begins on the wave of, you know, national romanticism and, and, uh, and all that. Um, some of the first publications that kind of touch upon Scandinavian Slavic interactions were published uh, around the, the end of the 19th century. And Polish scholars continue to be interested in this, in this topic over the next several decades until the Second World War, which mm -hmm. well, changed a lot. Mm -hmm. um, so when the Nazis um, entered Poland and uh, the occupation began, they kind of took Viking studies in Poland to a different level. Mm -hmm. Because of course their research, which they continued during the war, um, in central Poland, in greater Poland, um, in Silesia, in Pomerania, was obviously politically motivated. They were mm -hmm. desperately looking for uh, anything Viking related to prove their claim that these lands had been Germanic since time immemorial, basically. Mm -hmm. um, so after the war, uh, when Poland regained its independence in a way, because it was still not a free country. It was now occupied by someone else um, when, when the communist regime was introduced. Um, there was this desire to kind of prove the German uh, or the Nazi archaeologists wrong 
and to demonstrate instead that these lands had been Slavic forever, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and Jan, Jan Jacques was a scholar of that time, so was a scholar of the well 1960s and, and later. Uh, some people say that he was biased and that he was looking for, for Slavs everywhere and trying to kind of play down the Scandinavian presence in Poland. I don't think he was. I think I think he he was not biased, and I think he was fair in his assessment of the material. He was not trying to push it one way or the other. What may have seemed controversial to some people was that some things he wrote about he wrote in a in a very intuitive way. He had a he 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 knew material culture very well. So he could recognize different designs and he could very well distinguish between what was evidently Scandinavian from what seemed Slavic, even though it had no, at that point, no direct parallels. Mm -hmm. And looking back at his, his work today, well, he was right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. He was just right. So he, he, he predicted a lot of things. Uh, and, mm -hmm. uh, and only now we are finding proof for yeah. ideas. You know, it's it's so interesting because, uh, you know, thanks to the, the Iron Curtain uh, mm -hmm. that went down through Europe, right? Um, we, that, that the entire field of like Viking Age studies and also, you know, uh, Iron Age for that matter has sort of like been disconnected. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and and it's um and it's a uh, it, I mean there there's so many things that are coming up now of course that, that we're seeing that that you know that there's there's not a lot of sense in sort of like trying to separate what is happening in Scandinavia and what is happening on the uh, southern or eastern coasts of the Baltic uh, Sea it's very integrated in general culturally yeah. and um, I mean <laughs> one of the hints that one could have picked up on if you know, they cared to in like Danish history uh, classes would be the fact that like every single prince or princess comes from from somewhere over there in the eastern area. Like, yeah. um, I mean, we even had a king named Bugislav. So like we had to rename yeah. him Eric because. Absolutely. Well, the, especially the, the links between Denmark and the western Slavic area. So what is yeah. today northern Germany and Poland are are. Mm -hmm very very strong yeah and large and still largely understudied there's a lot of material that that deserves attention definitely and uh, and that the understanding of which the better understanding of which can really contribute to the better understanding of our shared history yeah um yeah i, I think well of course you, you mentioned the iron curtain uh which was a big problem also for academia and for viking studies um one thing that differentiates Poland um, at that time from, from, for instance, really Eastern Europe, so so mm -hmm. Russia, Belarus, Ukraine, and so on, is that we we never really had this kind of Normanist, anti-Normanist debate, right? Uh, to the to the extent that that they they had, mm -hmm. um, and 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 also with the difference. In terms of archaeology, strictly speaking, is that uh, we don't really have as many Viking Age finds mm -hmm. in Poland as as they do in in Russia, for example, or Ukraine. Right. 
Well, I mean, uh, you know, it, it, in... seems, it seems that the Scandinavian presence, um, well, probably reached the interior of the Piast state. I think that's that mm-hmm. we should not doubt that. Uh, but it mainly kind of concentrated along the coast of the Baltic and right. Pomerania, especially. Yeah, that uh, makes a lot but, of sense. Yeah. But I mean, in terms of, you know, the Normanist debate, which mm-hmm. is for those who don't know, that's the that's the whole debate in, in Russia, like whether or not uh, uh, Vikings had a hand in the establishment of, of the early Russian state, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, it hits at the core of identity too. So, yeah. so yeah. if you if you are fresh out of World War II and you're kind of sick of Germanic people, <laughs> I, I, I can see why you would end yeah. up with, with those debates. I think in, in, in Poland, this kind of Normanist debate or some kind of mild version of it only started in the 1990s, actually. And that's really interesting. It, it kind of starts in the 1990s, which is the time when communism falls. Mm-hmm. And this is the time when some scholars in Poland are sort of beginning to see Vikings in uh, early medieval cemeteries. They're beginning to see Viking Age objects. Uh, and they are kind of pushing for this idea that um, that Scandinavian mercenaries served the Polish kings and that they they were part of their retinues and that they were involved in all kinds of state formation processes and so on and then it it kind of it kind of escalates towards the the 2000s and post the post 2000 uh, um, period which is when Poland joins the EU mm-hmm. and I think the the way to interpret this is that at this point it's also in a way, well, I wouldn't, maybe it's, it's, it's maybe too much to say that it's politically motivated, but in a, in a way perhaps is sort of, it doesn't function, this, it doesn't function in a vacuum. And I mm-hmm. think some scholars need Vikings to get funding, to get mm-hmm. more uh, kind of interest from different, uh, different individuals in their work, but they perhaps also want to, uh, create this idea that Poland is part of Europe and mm-hmm. part of this Western European uh, European Union, uh, European community, uh, which at that stage in history uh, and today kind of takes pride in their Viking heritage. Mm-hmm. It's kind of cool to have Vikings. So oh, Vikings are cool. Also <laughs> wanted wanted to have Vikings of their own. Yeah, mm-hmm. and this is and this is also something we're seeing in Russia yeah, with yeah. you know uh, Vladimir the first. You know, there's that movie mm. made made about him that was called Viking. So, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. no, it doesn't seem to be just Russia. I think like you see a lot more now about North America as well. That seems to be pushed a lot of this idea. So yeah, Vikings are cool. Just, you can attach yeah. Vikings to anything; it's it makes also it better. When- yeah, also when you look at the, the development of the reenactment scene or the, the Viking Age reenactment scene, which which really, de- I mean, it starts much earlier, but it really uh, develops, begins to develop really rapidly in the 1990s and, and the 2000s. Everyone reenacts Scandinavian Vikings. Mm-hmm. So you have, you have Polish reenactors taking... Uh, Scandinavian names, so you have you know hundreds of Ragnars and Orms and you know Ulfs and so on, mm-hmm. uh, and no, well, 
I wouldn't say no one, but very few groups are actually really interested in in recreating sort of native uh, Slavic traditions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And today, there are more and more groups that are actually interested in in the Slavic world. Yeah. So there's a different shift now. Yeah, oh, that's really the interesting. Slavs, the Slavs are now beginning to be. I've been sexy. saying this for a while. This, you the, have this, said it on here before. Yeah, Slavic Slavic stuff, like pre-Christian Slavic history is like the thing that's going to take over from, from Vikings, just like Vikings took over from the Celtic mm. stuff. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think maybe to some extent. I mean, people are, are, are becoming more and more aware mm. of, of things, of, of, of Slavic history, Slavic mythology. Also through things like the Witcher games and the the, mm-hmm. the yeah. series, which kind of draws on on Slavic mythology in in a way. Mm-hmm. Of course, That's what you, you need know, the, the Witcher series is not something you should use to learn Slavic hi- history or Slavic mythology. <laughs> Don't do that. But <laughs> but yes, it's it kind of. It it definitely draws interest. Draws, yeah, draws you, interest. Into sometimes that. that's what it takes to to have a cultural yeah. shift. Is just a really big mainstream game program, yeah. something like that, that draws attention to a to an area, and it it, it yeah. suddenly brings new life to it. The, the The problem is still the linguistic barrier, I think, because mm-hmm. uh, there's still not enough uh, about Slavic mythology. Uh, in in English or in mm. other in other sort of Congress languages, yeah, um, yeah, because we're lazy. It's, it's, Us English speakers, we we yeah. suck at learning anything else other than yeah English. And, and Polish of all languages is, is I mean it's it's hard, it's hard. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I imagine so. Should we should we get on to to women? I think we're we're almost an hour in. Sure, we haven't. Yeah. Uh, we haven't touched such the humans. I mean, before we move on, I have to say you were a determined, determined child, because yeah. I, I mean, now I know why I'm so dumb. Because uh, I determined adult as well. I, think. I I would have got the the, the poetic header and I've, I'd have read the Havamal and gone, that's cool. And then when I when I didn't understand the rest, I just gone, closed it up and gonna play football or <laughs> ran around climbing trees or making dens. Like I, I wouldn't have gone through the lengths that you did to, uh, to kind of figure it out and work it out. But I mean, uh. full credit to you, and I'm glad you did. <laughs> I mean, I, I think I got my first uh, um, uh, etta, um, in, of course, in Danish um, when I was 13, and I didn't understand a goddamn thing either. <laughs> I was like, what, what is all this? But uh, I, I made myself, I, I ran out in the woods and made myself a little den and then I sat there and, and kept reading it. So, oh. you know, you could combine. <laughs> you yeah. could, yeah. I just wouldn't have taken a book to the den. And if I did, I'd have been like one of those savages that made a fire out of it. <laughs> well, <yeah. laughs> I was just, uh, I'd, have been, I, I'd have been one of those that were crucified for like burning all the books back in, Kind of like the dark ages. But this arcane knowledge, it's not supposed to be easy, you know. No, it's not supposed to not. be accessible. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know, like I say you were a determined child, and that's uh, that's a good trait to have, I think. Mm. So you are you've written a book on Viking well, on warrior women in the Viking Age. Um it seems to be a topic that is red hot all over no matter where you go whether in scholarship or in 
and the everyday layperson, you either get this idea that yes, they were shield maidens, or no, absolutely not. It's a it's a modern construct. These seem to be the two stances. Um, hopefully, your book is going to answer that. <laughs> hopefully, although I deliberately uh, chose a different title. Um, I saw the book is called "Women and Weapons in the Viking Age." So That's I, it. I do apologize. I, I'd, li- I'd like to. I'd like to think the book is about women and weapons, and. Well, also about women warriors, of course, but but the overarching theme, I think, is women and weapons. Mm. Um, so the the idea is to explore all kinds of associations women had with the martial sphere that are not mm. only limited to actual participation in war. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So what the book what the book does is it, it of course. Um, looks at possible evidence archaeological or other for for women warriors but it also looks at women who use weapons in other sort of non-martial circumstances for instance in magic mm-hmm. um yeah and i it was a great adventure writing this book and uh it's probably one of the most difficult books I've written so far, if not the most difficult book. It took it took longer than I expected to to research it and to to complete it. Um, the last months, of course, were during the pandemic, so that that was also another obstacle in some in some ways. The last months of writing it. Um, the book is interdisciplinary, so it's like like most of the stuff I do, I kind of draw on different sources. Um, of course, archaeology uh, plays the major role here because this is as close as we can get to the Viking Age. Mm-hmm. Textual mm-hmm. sources are definitely helpful, but of course, we know that they are usually much younger and they they uh, well they manipulate and obscure mm-hmm. uh, things, and um, you cannot take them for granted. But what I also did for for this project is I spent quite a lot of time reading about women warriors and women and weapons, women wielding weapons in other cultures and in other places around the globe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I hope the readers will will kind of appreciate this and and and, and will enjoy the chapters that that re- relate to this material because I found that the most kind of eye eye opening uh, part of my my research. Um, so do you, think, do you think that's a big sort of part in, I guess, unlocking whether there were female warriors? Obviously, I think so. Yeah, I, I, I think yes, and I think well, one, th- one, one thing that we we have to kind of establish in talking about women warriors anywhere, including the Viking Age, is what do we actually mean by warrior? Because mm-hmm. we all talk about women warriors and did warrior women exist in the Viking Age? But we we hardly ever, even if you read through all kinds of books about the Viking Age, we hardly ever think about, well, what, what did it mean to be a warrior in the Viking Age? Mm-hmm. Is a warrior someone who takes a sword or, or axe or spear and actually launches themselves into the fray to fight and to kill? Or is it something to do with, also to do with ideology, uh, do you have to actively engage 
in conflict to be a warrior? Or mm. can you be someone who is sitting on a horse and just, you know, mm -hmm. steering the army with your finger? Um, so and also, this, is it a lifetime pursuit? Is it a, or is, yeah, exactly. Is it a lifetime pursuit? Or is it just something that you do from time to time or just once in a lifetime? Um, so the, the book kind of considers this and, and, and kind of debates this and, and uses different sources to, to better understand what it, what it meant or may have meant to be a warrior. And what I found really interesting, coming back to this kind of cross-cultural uh, topic, is in reading all these different accounts of women warriors around the world, uh, I found it really interesting reading first-hand impressions of, of female warriors or women who participated in a war, how they perceived themselves. And uh, we talked about Poland earlier, and one of the things I, I discuss is the, the roles of women in the Warsaw Uprising. Um, mm -hmm. Some of you may not be familiar with what Warsaw Uprising was, and of course that's a, it's a big topic. Uh, but it was a, an event that took over 60 days in 1944, when the population of Warsaw, including the Polish underground army, decided to rise and drive the Germans out of the city. Mm -hmm. uh, this eventually led to, well, mass murder, depopulation, and almost complete destruction of the city. Mm. Uh, but it was a very heroic, uh, heroic act in which uh, hundreds of women uh, actively participated, and uh, and they took on different roles as sentinels, as uh, messengers, as uh, paramedics, mm -hmm. as soldiers in in the sort of proper sense of the word. And I, I found it really interesting reading their. Uh, their uh, recollections from from the uprising and reading the recollections of women who did almost exactly the same things and how one woman would say, I consider myself uh, a warrior or a soldier, whereas another woman who did the same thing would say, no, I was not a soldier. It was just my, my kind of patriotic duty. Um, mm -hmm. It was my obligation. Um, yeah, so that that's just one example how 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 blurry this is and how 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 vague sometimes and how open to interpretation. Mm -hmm. um, and one of another another case study and another book that that I found really fascinating and very relevant actually to what's going on in the Viking Age. Um, it's a book on the um, uh, tradition of female transvestism in early modern Europe. Mm -hmm. And this book discusses female crossdressers in the Netherlands in the mm -hmm. uh, 18th, 18th century, 17th, 18th century. Um, and it's absolutely fascinating. And it's also very, very well written. Uh, and it's the, the value of the book lies in the fact that the authors have used legal records uh, from court trials of women who dressed up or cross-dressed as men. And who are prosecuted for doing so, mm -hmm. and then it discusses the different motivations they had to become men mm -hmm. permanently or temporarily, uh, and it identifies several different patterns. So it says that women would would cross dress 
for economic reasons, because if they come from the, the lowest social strata, the only thing they could do was to steal or become prostitutes. There was no way for them to progress mm -hmm. uh, and move up the social ladder. But I mean, this is good about that. There's yeah. a skit about that in Blackadder. <laughs> yeah. So cross-dressing and becoming men and then becoming a soldier or a sailor uh, was a ticket to a better life. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and the book makes it very clear that those women who, who made it, who made it across the seas um, to all the way to India, for instance, uh, they would just become almost princesses and just live a prosperous, beautiful life. Mm -hmm. um, it it also talks about women who cross-dress because this is the only way they can uh, legally marry another woman if they want to have this kind of relationship. Uh, then it talks about women who cross-dress and become soldiers and sailors because they feel a patriotic duty or a patriotic obligation. And these women can even come from very high social strata. They just cannot be soldiers as women, so they become men. Um, and and it's it's also fascinating because at that point in time in history, uh, the Dutch Republic is a sea empire basically. It's all mm -hmm. about ships and sailing and uh, naval uh, trade and warfare and so on. Uh, and it's not. I mean, it's it's several hundred years after the Viking Age, but Conceptually, it's not that far. Mm -hmm. um, and one thing that I found really interesting is the kind of discussion about how they concealed their identity as women when on board a ship. And, uh, and one thing they, the book mentions is that uh, they used special, the book kind of elegantly puts it, urination aids. Uh, <laughs> like, so they could like urinate over, overboard. And it's it's actually a device that's made of horn. So you think about this, and you think about the Viking Age. You know, would, would yeah. that have been possible? Yes. I mean, the that ships, makes the ships are are definitely smaller. It's much more difficult to to conceal your identity. I mean, how terrifying must that have been? Yeah, if you're lucky, maybe this is the way the way you do it. Um. So yeah, so that's so that's 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 another example. I I look at uh, the black Amazons also of of Dahomey in uh, in Benin in Africa. Mm -hmm. uh, these are some of the best documented warrior women in history. We know about them through etchings and firsthand uh, accounts of European explorers and soldiers with whom they fought. Uh, mm -hmm. These were women who formed very fierce fighting units. They had their own chants and songs and uh, mythologies and special weapons and costumes. There's stories of women who attack men and, and other uh, people with, with such fierceness that there's stories of women who like bite through somebody's neck and, you know, violent and gory stuff. <laughs> but it's real. I mean, a lot mm -hmm. of it is real. What what about so uh, female samurai? Yeah, I I know that this was the case, but it's not something I I've chosen to discuss in the book. Of course, you have to be selective uh, because mm -hmm. there's just so yeah. many cases of um, mm -hmm. of warrior women around the world, and I of course I couldn't discuss all of them. So I I, I like I, this I like what you just said right there. There are just so many cases of cases. warrior women. 
cases, yeah, cases, yeah. because, and this kind of brings us back to the to the Viking Age. I, m my impression, uh, based on the sources I've examined, uh, the things I've read, is that it was possible for women to take up arms, to fight, but I don't think this was the norm, and I don't mm -hmm. think you witness as many female warriors as as the TV series Viking presents on the battle. Well, so no, that's, that's, that's I think uh, from my <laughs> my understanding of the archaeological material, or my my reading of the archaeological material, especially of the burial finds uh, and of the weapons in female graves, kind of leads me to this conclusion that in a lot of cases, those weapons should not be understood as weapons per se. They seem to communicate something else. Just uh, so for instance, um, if the three graves with swords that are believed to be female are actually of women, but in a biological and gendered sense, in 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 all three cases, the swords are on the left side, on the left hand side, which is quite unusual mm -hmm. by Viking Age standards. In one case, the sword is positioned in such a way that it's pointing towards the face, which is also very unusual and can be interpreted in a number of ways. Then in other graves that are most likely female graves, um, there are axes, uh, which are really uncharacteristic. There's nothing special about them, but the same graves have amulets or curated objects, slaughtered animals, and so on. Uh, which makes me think that these axes were ritual attributes of the dead, mm -hmm. that the women used those axes in, in magic. Uh, and Matthias, you probably know this uh, fantastic account from Liosvetninga saga, which, mm -hmm. which I kind of use to, to support this theory. Um, and here in the saga, the, the saga mentions a cross-dressing sorceress who is asked to perform a a prophetic ritual, and she she's dressed like a man, she has a helmet on her head, she carries an axe, and she wades into the fjord, she hits the water of the fjord twice with the axe, and when she does it the second time, the water turns turns bloody, and it's mm -hmm. of course a bad omen. So you can see a, someone using an axe in a in a magic ritual. Mm -hmm. um, I I think it's it's not an over-interpretation to see at least some of those axes in those very specific contexts as possible ritual tools. Mm -hmm. Okay. I just wanted to quickly pull it back um, a minute or so. When you were talking about whether it's possible to to kind of have, I guess, warrior women in the Viking Age, and I wanted to try and maybe clear it up in a sense of, I guess it's one thing for there to have been warrior women who pretended to be men and fight. Mm. And then another thing of it being very acceptable in the culture mm. and allow women to fight as women. Yeah. And I think that maybe is where a lot of people might get confused or there's a, a gray area because I think mm. shield maidens in particular in like modern culture have become very much an empowerment thing, uh, especially in modern culture at the minute. It's, it's an empowerment it's an empowering role model for, for women. And rightfully so, you know, it's 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 a strong figurehead. And it's so I I, I think that's why so many people go gung-ho for it. 
you know, of as women fighting, as women, alongside mm. men, as equals. Um, but then I was wondering how true that was. And you mentioned about, obviously, the, the Dutch. And I was wondering whether it was that kind of instance where they were pretending to be men to fight. Mm. And I, think- I was just, I guess, I was wondering what the, if we knew what the male outlook would have been of the societal outlook would have been as whether it would have been seen as been negative or of that of acceptance as as kind of as equal yeah that's a that's a very good question um i think archaeology can only answer or try to answer this question to a very limited extent uh but if we if we look at the texts which are equally problematic if not more problematic um I find it really interesting that the the sagas of Icelanders or the family sagas, they actually never, ever mention warrior women. Mm -hmm. Uh, They mention women who reach for weapons. One of them was this sorceress from Ljusbetninga saga. There are other women who reach for weapons when they they want to make a statement, uh, wound a a husband who betrays them or Mm -hmm. marries another woman and so on. when talking about shield maidens, we only encounter them, or, or 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 warrior women, we only encounter them in Eddic poetry and in the legendary sagas. And this is interesting because, of course, the legendary sagas they're sort of considered as fantastic and having little to do with the the real Viking Age and Viking Age mentalities and so on. You have like flying carpets and dragons and trolls and all kinds of uh, crystal palaces <laughs> yeah um they, they they do mention women warriors actual women warriors who uh who who fight and lead armies and have their own fortresses and so on but it's one one thing that's really interesting about them is that they tend to come from elite circles they're not just anybody they mm-hmm. they come from from usually royal or or very high status backgrounds. And I think, well, if there is a grain of truth in those stories, I think it would have been much easier for women from such elite circles in the Viking Age to learn to fight and to possibly participate in warfare just because they belong to the elite and the elite stands above the crowd you know and can do more simply because they are blessed in some way Uh, but on the other hand uh, again if there is a grain of truth in those stories we can see that in on several occasions these warrior women are being mocked by men so there's a scene in one of the sagas where uh, a warrior kind of smacks a woman on the on the back uh, kind of to show uh, you're not such a good warrior after all. Mm-hmm. Um, so it kind of dis- in a discriminatory, discriminatory way. Um, but the sagas, on the other hand, the, the legendary sagas show that these these women fought just as well as men. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we shouldn't so, also we should also uh, keep in mind that that it is a standing trope of medieval literature in Europe. Yeah. In, you know, depending on where we are in time, we see, uh, you know, different 
uh, writers talking about some neighboring peoples a little farther to the north or something like that who had like female warriors and yeah. were ruled by women and those kinds of things like Adam of Bremen is a good example I think he he locates such a society in what is you know approximately Finland right and and that's that's of course also part of it that has been you know this has been discussed yeah. in 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 literary scholarship for for quite some time now yeah I mean, uh, of course and and all those medieval writers they were educated people and they definitely drew on ancient traditions they may have been familiar with the works of Herodotus or the likes of him who who write extensively about Amazons mm-hmm. and female warriors. One thing that's really interesting to consider in, in talking about who, not, not only if these women were real, but who these women were, is whether these women among the Vikings, uh, sort of Scandinavian Vikings, were Scandinavian mm-hmm. uh, at all. Some of them maybe, others could have come from different parts of the world and including um, the, the steppe area, mm-hmm. including, including uh, Southern and Eastern Europe or, or Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, this maybe is not the case of the Birka woman. We, I, I think we, we don't know. But what I find really interesting about this grave is that, first of all, there's quite a lot of Eastern stuff in this grave, including mm-hmm. Uh, this very elaborate hat that has parallels in uh, in the area of Kievian Rus. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it just just is this the the most recent one? That, that is the famous uh, yeah. the, the one that kind of you see publicized like the smoking gun for exactly yeah warrior women yeah. Then the same grave, and I find that quite quite interesting. Um, it has all kinds of equipment for riding, including two horses uh, and stirrups, mm-hmm. but it doesn't have spurs. And what mm-hmm. is interesting in the Viking Age, when you find graves with riding equipment, you usually find uh, a set of, uh, of riding gear, including stirrups and spurs, because this is the Western European way of mounted warfare. You use mm. spurs and stirrups, whereas in the East, and especially among the nomads, they did not use spurs at all. Okay. Uh, mm. They would use stirrups because stirrups are actually an Eastern invention, probably from China all the way back. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the most primitive form, it would have been uh, just a loop made of rope. Right. And mm-hmm. a stirrup enables you to, well, to, to, to maneuver your horse in a more efficient way, but it also enables you to shoot your bow. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's something that the stuff she's buried with, you could interpret it or misinterpret it in this way. It, it reflects an Eastern type of warfare, an Eastern type of horseback warfare. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's 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 kind of interesting. And in fact, in several other graves that are presumably female and that contain weapons or weapon-like objects. There are again Eastern imports or objects that have links in the East. Mm-hmm. To so, go to, to, to stick on the the uh, Birka woman, um, is there or am I right in thinking that there's some damage to the to the skeleton or some sort of wounding? not that I not that I know of. That not a, not a single one of those skeletons has evident damage. 
Uh, there has been some speculation about this one skull from uh, from Norway, from uh, from Osnes, Nordlesjelen, uh, but it it has been sort of suggested in a National Geographic documentary, but not published and not verified. Okay, so I'm, I'm that not, might have been I'm the not one kind of I... touching upon this because yeah, we just we just don't know. Okay, that might have been the one that I, yeah, uh, yeah. I might have seen. Yeah, with, I do remember the, seeing a, yeah, a National Geographic other, documentary pumped out yeah, there. With the, others, of... with the other graves, uh, there's nothing or there's just no skeletal material. It's mm -hmm. uh, That's the biggest problem. So the, the graves are sort of sexed and gendered as female, uh, largely on the basis of, of grave goods. Which of course okay. is is a difficult thing, and it's, uh, it's it's highly problematic. But that's how it's done. Okay, so I guess even the sexing isn't. Yeah, yeah, and I, I I try to make that very clear in 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 the book, and also point out to to all kinds of difficulties of 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 interpreting burials and and burial archaeology, starting mm -hmm. with the with the idea, of course, that the dead don't bury themselves, and that objects mm -hmm. in graves can mean all kinds of different things and and perhaps we shouldn't necessarily look desperately for female warriors in graves with weapons because mm -hmm. not every warrior was buried with weapons mm -hmm. you know and people buried with weapons need not have been warriors mm -hmm. I, I assume some people would say could that not work the other way around then mm -hmm. if you could have overlooked a female warrior buried in a warrior's grave. If you if you can't if you have to sex it on grave goods, then possibly maybe there is women buried as the we've just assumed and men. I guess. Hmm. I guess you could argue, argue both ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Which I guess I know, I, 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 the truth is that there are a lot of a lot of uh, so-called male warrior graves are only called male warrior graves because there are weapons in them yeah this is this does not rely on osteological or genetic analysis mm -hmm. this assessment relies predominantly uh and speaking globally not just about scandinavia on the grave goods and weapons and the the kind of victorian assumptions that weapons equal men mm -hmm. that's how naive i am i thought you yeah. could just test them and be like yep that's uh, a man that's a well, the, the, I, I just well, was like, oh yeah, DNA is a thing now. The bulk that of the material, everything. the bulk of the material, the Viking funerary material was discovered in the 19th and early 20th century. Yeah, most of the finds we have, and and then at that point, uh, those early archaeologists, antiquarians, farmers, they were not very interested in bones. They they mm. they were. They were interested in shiny objects. Yeah, they were interested oh, in shiny things. They were they were just grave. Grave robbers, really. Yeah, you have to call it that way because that's, yeah. that's really what they were. Yeah, no, that's a, that's that's a good point, and and, and I mean it, it is you know a you know encompassing uh, work to to go through all of these uh, old graves, and then you know maybe you have to you know reassign. Sexes and genders and so on, right? So one one thing that that uh, is interesting to think about, but not always possible to check and prove, is that okay? We have a grave with weapons, but are the weapons actually functional? 
have they ever been used or mm -hmm. are they just theatrical props placed in the grave only on the occasion of the funeral and for the funeral? Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, if, if, if this is a modern grave, uh, well, maybe you could, you could prove this, but if it's a grave from 1000 years ago and everything is rusted and, and uh, broken and in pieces, there's just no way of, you know, I've, I've looked at, I've looked at those swords and axes and, and arrowheads trying to, to kind of determine if they have some, you know, chips and nicks mm -hmm. and if there's any, anything to indicate that someone had actually used them before they placed them in the grave. It's just, yeah, no, you, you can make wild guesses, but it's really difficult to tell. Yeah. We need, we need a time machine. Uh, someone needs to, we need to come together as a global but, community and invent but Yeah, I think, I think it's also, you have to, in dealing with this topic, and of course, it is a sensitive topic um, also for, for people today, I'm, I'm not trying to prove or disprove the existence of women warriors in the Viking Age. I'm just trying to point out to all kinds of methodological and source-critical problems mm -hmm. that we have to be aware of before we even engage in this kind of discussion. Mm -hmm. and, that, and, uh, and I think that's not emphasized enough or has not been emphasized enough. Absolutely. That actually leads me to what I wanted to ask to, to both you and Mr. Like, I, I don't have any agenda in, in doing this. Mm -hmm. I want to make that very clear. No, absolutely. Yeah, yeah so I, I want to ask you both, do you ever feel like, a, like a, 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 you want to lean a certain way because of the way that like the culture is at the minute or the way that things are seen or I guess maybe you may be seen as the body you know if you wrote a book even if the evidence showed a hundred percent like the warrior women didn't exist hypothetically I'd say that that's what what happened like would you feel almost bad for putting that out there because it's such a an empowering thing in modern culture like do you ever feel that kind of lean to to go a certain direction or do you always try and I, I know the answers are is going to be that you always try and stay as neutral mm -hmm. as possible but I wondered whether that that ever came in that you felt that kind of not urge but I guess you you know what I mean mm. Mm. well Leshek, yeah. do you want to go first <laughs> I, I can I mean I, I try to stay as neutral as I can but of course we we all have our uh, biases and mm -hmm. We use different sources. It's it's impossible to check everything. Uh, new finds are uh, are being discovered all the time. Uh, archaeology is a very dynamic discipline. You say one thing today, and the next day it can be proven false. Mm. Um, so we have to stay open. I think. Mm. And, uh, I I agree. Um, you know, as textual scholar, I I I live in the more in the realm of imagination in a sense right mm. because i mean we're i if nothing else what i what i will be researching is the imagination <laughs> of people like say if i'm researching the saga literature that's the imagination of the 13th 14th century mm. icelanders you know some of it is real there, there, there's there's real historical material that goes into that literature, but it's all woven together through imagination in different ways. So, so in that sense, sometimes I I, I can I can be a little more liberal with some of these uh, issues. Um, 
personally what what i what i try to do is uh is that i try to uh challenge uh, existing narratives in, in different ways and and hopefully make people think uh differently um about um whatever subject we're working with um if uh if the saga conference had taken place this year i would have uh, given a talk about the possibility of vikings tattooing hmm. um, and and that is that is a largely an argument based around the fact that we we make a lot of arguments about culture and religion and history based off of the literary material which much sparser uh, <laughs> uh source material to back it up sometimes um so so that's that's a way to you know open up conversation about well how do we actually use the literary material as source material to this viking age mm -hmm. um so so that's 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 my approach and and it's not necessarily based off of like oh i want to push something through and uh like oh you know i, I want to make a case for female warriors or, or something like that obviously mm -hmm. there's uh there's also the, the the concern for you know being neutral um mm -hmm. but um, oh, absolutely yeah i just wonder whether there was ever that kind of you know, like it's a fear you felt like you had to go in a certain direction because it was culturally acceptable. <laughs> you know the word I was trying to say, but acceptable at the time, like you know, nobody wants to be the guy who comes out and says, No, they're not real or one way or another. Well, I mean, so so Denmark right now has a uh a kind of a crisis when it comes to all of this. There's a you know, a political push to uh to um uh discredit or in other ways question um you know gender studies and 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 also race studies um as part of sort of a um i guess this is this is like happening in different places in europe right now hungary has also yeah. Poland, uh, yeah. Poland, yes and and i mean obviously it is a reality that there is a, a that there are different political groups out there in different ways depending on what time period and 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 who's in charge right who 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 have vested interests in skewing research in one direction or skewing it in, in another direction and it is um that is of course you know as a scholar who just want to know about history it, that's really really annoying <laughs> to be honest <laughs> because all of a sudden you know our, our basic work becomes a matter of of politics by by a bunch of people who have no clue what what we actually do mm -hmm. from, from doing this this podcast um speaking to people from all different fields of uh like nordic studies one thing i've noticed it seems like you guys all need to speak to each other more and like your own different fields like i just want to grab a bunch of you and just put you in a room <laughs> like archaeologists like i just just put you there and say give you a topic and go figure just figure this out between you <laughs> yeah. all kind of just put your knowledge together it seems like you know you all do amazing work in your own area but when it comes to kind of i guess because there's no central point is it where everything goes back to and then you can you can pick well, it, the, pick the, it the, the, the issue is you have like 
Viking, right? That's like a, a label. And then you have all of these different disciplines that uh, that are interested in that label in different mm -hmm. ways. You have archaeology, literature, history of religion, um, anthropology, a bunch of, of, of different disciplines. They all uh, basically approach that subject uh, from, from different methodologies and theoretical perspectives and so on, right? Um, it's impossible to be educated in all mm -hmm. of, of, mm -hmm. of these perspectives. Um, you can try. I, I, I tried with my, um, with my studies initially. Um, I, I did studies in, in archaeology and in history and in philology and literature and also a little bit in, in the history of religion. Got a little bit of, of all of it, but I'm primarily a scholar of literature, right? That, that's what I do. So, so, so the other things that I've done, they, they sort of just help me understand a little bit of, of what my colleagues do in different ways. Mm -hmm. But uh, of course, uh, I think you're right. You know, there needs to be more interdisciplinary uh, interaction in different ways. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree. And of course we should talk more to each other, but we should also talk more to the wider audience. Mm -hmm. uh, and the non-academic audience, all sorts of history, archaeology, uh, ancient religion enthusiasts. Um, well, the, the audience of today's show also, it's, it's so important because we're not doing this just for ourselves, um, just, you know, as, a, as an esoteric academic hobby. Uh, there is a world of uh, interesting people out there who would like to learn more. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and we should, I think, uh, try our best to make our work available and accessible and useful mm -hmm. to these people, inspiring in some ways. Mm -hmm. And I think the one of the biggest problems of today's academia is that it's actually, on the one hand, it's making these this research accessible, but on the other hand, it's, it's also not. Mm -hmm. uh, the books are extremely expensive. Um, Academic articles are behind paywalls and people can't access them, can't read them. Even we as authors, you know, we write something for a journal and we just get the P PDF of our own article and we don't have PDF copies of all the other articles in the same book. Mm -hmm. uh, how, how, how nice is that, right? Sometimes we even have to pay to publish. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I, in an ideal world, everything that we do, everything that we produce should be open access. Mm -hmm. uh, people should be able to, to read it. Uh, the, the problem is I think you're only going to get a certain amount of people that are going to read it. Hmm. Those who are academically minded yeah, are, I think are able to kind of, because I know for me, like I'm, I'm so interested in this, that I created a podcast with Mateus about it, but I'm not the kind of person that's going to pick up like an academic research paper and read through it because I'm probably going to get down the first yeah, page. Or, or overwhelmed, perhaps, yeah, also. Just exactly. By, so yeah, that's why by, I think it's important for things that we do and other platforms mm. like this where we can try and, I don't want to say dumb it down, but certainly dumb it down for me, but kind of make it easier for other people to to um, digest it, I guess. Yeah. That should be a primary goal for 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 any scholar in in one way or another if you ask me of course it's it's also you know 
it's difficult to deal with uh, uh, depending on where you are in the world. Some places, you know, scholarship is more monetized than than in other places. In in some places, you like for instance, Denmark is a good example of where you can get access to most research material uh, mm. through the National Library, right? Um, but that's not the case in the U.S. You can't just like access all kinds of uh, yeah. uh, research uh, through the libraries here. So, mm -hmm. so that that differs greatly too. Ruben's just made a good point in the uh, chat. If you want to read it out, Matthias, <laughs> sure. I'll fluff, I'll fluff it up. Ruben says academia is basically digging its own parenthesis Viking and parenthesis grave by not engaging with the audience. Not only are books expensive, but social media is also not used. In a time where the maximum span of someone's concentration is not longer than 10 minutes, we need far more stuff like podcasts and platforms where academics can share their ideas. I very much agree with you, Ruben. Um, I mean, I, I try to make myself accessible on on, uh, on on social media. On the other hand, that is also incredibly time consuming. Mm -hmm. You know, you I often get people who like send me a message, "Hey, quick question," blah, 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 blah. and it's like that's actually not a quick question at all, my friend. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, there's no easy answer to it, I guess. Yeah, and you guys are so busy that you you're doing your own things. It's hard to to do the social media side as well. Uh, and I guess also, this might be a bit stereotypical, but I guess acad academics tend to be a little bit older, um, or some certainly, who may not be familiar with their social media. Obviously, younger mm. ones coming through will have grown up in and around it, but certainly, you know, the ones kind of at the, the top end of the age scale, to be polite. There are some positive trends and changes in academia. One thing you just mentioned that, that there's a generational change that's coming. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, our generation, uh, mine, Matthias, is, uh, is more open to social media, to all kinds of interactions with the wider audience. And that's, and that's, that's great. And I think hopefully this, this generation will also be less elitist uh, because I think the older generation is extremely elitist mm -hmm. and judgmental. And racist, also, mm -hmm. unfortunately, yeah, uh, and misogynist for that matter. <laughs> misogynist, and I've I've seen it many times uh, mm -hmm. in 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 my experience, and and hopefully this will change. It has to change. Mm -hmm. it simply yeah. has to change. I'm sure. But will. I would also say one thing about social media, right? You you write a great blog post about how we need to stop saying Norse, and then all of a sudden you find yourself in a meme war. <laughs> <laughs> so a little bit of context for you, this uh, check. Matthias wrote a blog post about how basically calling Norse must die. I don't know if you saw it or not, um, and he may put a good good point forward. But now in our Facebook group, he just gets inundated with Norse-based memes to try and upset him. <laughs> so you you can't win, I don't think. No, I don't think I can. But I, I mean, at least I get to make my own memes. So there you go. Awesome. <laughs> the background. <laughs> Anybody listening, you have to join our Facebook page, which is just the Non-Mythology Podcast on Facebook, because oh, the, well, the Facebook group, because there is some of the most brilliant minds of course, some memes in there that are unbelievable, and they have 
hilarious. <laughs> so, yeah, let's uh, let's wrap this one up. I mean, we didn't get round to magic and staffs, so please come back again, and we will. It would be uh, my pleasure, of course. It will be good fun to talk about all that kind of stuff as well. And we didn't yeah, even get to vampires. Yeah, yeah, we can we can also return to the Slavic topics, and I'm very happy to talk about that. Perhaps some of you guys or or the listeners of the podcast would also like to learn more about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. No, this was a very very interesting conversation. I th- I feel like I learned a lot. <laughs> you you're welcome back as many times as we can book you in Thank advance. Thank you so much, guys. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Perfect. Thanks. Um, oh, let's check. Is there anything you want to shout out? Where where can people pick up your book when um, it does yeah, the, the, come out? I think I mentioned it earlier, but I don't know if we were recording. Uh, uh, the book is coming out with Oxbow Books. It's quite accessible when it comes to the price. It's, I think, now available in pre-order and it's 24 euro or 25 euro. Mm-hmm. And it's coming out on the 15th of July in Europe. Yeah. And there is an American edition. So if you're in, in America, wait and get the American edition. And I think it's coming out uh, at the end of September this year. Mm-hmm. They're, they're so, both the same. The covers are different. I'm going to mm-hmm. I'm gonna get the details off you for the publisher and see if I can get some copies for the website. Sure. Because it's, it's definitely a book that I want to stock on there. Because I think it will be important for people to pick up and read and hopefully get it in as many people's hands as possible. Yeah. Um, Matthias, what about you? Where can people find you? <laughs> you can always find me on my Instagram. Um, uh, yeah, I guess I'm also on on Facebook, <laughs> where people barrage me with memes. And um, <laughs> yeah, that uh, that that would be about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm, I'm I'm accessible by email or or Facebook. On my my Instagram page is more like a really a private page a hobby page and Mm -hmm. i don't really i I post architecture and art deco uh tenements because that's one of my hobbies so yeah no it's (laughs) not too much viking stuff there that's the thing like my facebook was sort of like my private thing but uh yeah now (laughs) (laughs) not not since i I kept telling everybody just to add you well you shouldn't (laughs) say on the podcast don't add me to the don't add me as a friend because obviously <laughs> I'm going to say add Matthias as a friend. <laughs> oh well, <laughs> I'm a big child. If you say don't do something, I'm going to be like, everyone, go and do this. <laughs> go touch it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's it. Uh, okay. If you if you enjoy the show, please leave us a five star rating, a positive review, preferably on iTunes. Helps us bump up the ratings. You can find us on Facebook. Instagram at Nordic Mythology Podcast. The website is just nordicmythologypodcast.com. You can get some merch on there. Um, we're pushing us YouTube subscribers. So if you want to subscribe to the YouTube channel, again, it's just Nordic Mythology Podcast, pretty much across the board. And then if you want to get a little bit more involved, Patreon really helps us out. We've got uh, like $5, $10, and $20 tiers. Um, you get a different thing for each one, but each one lets you jump in the live show and watch the episodes live and join in the live chat. And you also get our bonus episode where me and Matthias sit down and watch an episode of the Vikings every week and let you know what's real, what's not real, and just have a, a good time and a good laugh. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you very much. That's the show.